This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. It's Friday, Friday. Right? Yo, yo, yo. You know how we do. What's up, man? I'm a fan of that song, aren't you? I actually don't even know what song that that was. Black? Oh, yeah. Man, you know what? I am a huge fan of the phenomenon. Not the song, but the phenomenon. (laughs) Because uh, (laughs) Rebecca Black, oh, man, that song was so bad. But the song blew up, and it mainly blew up because of all the haters. All the people that just got really mad at her and how stupid the song was, it like made her so much money and made the song so popular. And, and I always just love that. I always love when people allow themselves to get worked up about something that has absolutely nothing to do with their lives. And then they cause the thing that they hate to succeed precisely because of their choice to waste their time. That's just always hilarious. I always love me. what it reveals about human nature, too. It's like uh, it's like the people who are the, the music purists that hate all mainstream music. And they, they claim to reject yes. the whole mainstream music and the whole apparatus and all of its silliness. But then they'll get bitter when their indie artist doesn't win a Grammy, which is just like a mainstream music award that they're not supposed <laughs> to care about. Um, happy Friday to you, TK. What's up, man? You know, I don't celebrate special dates and occasions, and I'm not sentimental. That's that's your department to turn turn things into Friday is just a day to me every day. Every day is Friday. Um, Praxis. So what do you say? Like TGI, TGI, TGIT. Thank God it's today. What's that? TGIT. So real quick, got to get in the sponsor plug. Praxis is a nine month program. Uh, we are transitioning to a nine month program from a 12 month program. So if you go to the website, it'll still say 12 month. We're making that transition over the next month. So you'll see that reflected soon. But for anyone who applies now, um, going forward, it is a nine month program, a three month intense boot camp where you're really building your brand and, and, and getting those entrepreneurial skills and mindsets, getting set up with a great business partner, a six month paid apprenticeship where you paid $15 an hour to work at an amazing growing startup that leads to a full-time job offer at the end of the program. There is nothing like it. It is absolutely amazing. If you want to apprentice at a startup, if you love the idea of doing meaningful, exciting work with fast growth companies, and you're not a coder or a technical person, this is the program for you. We've got all kinds of amazing roles, and this will absolutely change your life and get your career on hyperdrive. All right. I got something I want to start off with, TK. Is that cool? Are you on mute? That sound- yeah, I was on mute. That sounds great, man. What, what why, is why are you going to mute yourself like that? You know I need to get the feedback from you. I need the, uh-huh, preach it, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> I'll leave it off mute, man. All right, Let's so, go. so I'm holding in my hands uh, physical paper, which unless you're using it for some artistic purpose, is just one of the worst things in the world when physical mail comes to you that requires some sort of action. Um I get home from a nice little trip to, trip to uh, New York last week, uh, a really valuable, productive mm-hmm. couple days, and I've got you know a couple pieces of mail. And I always hate it when I get mail because it's never anything good, like mail that matters. So my wife had left the mail there. I see this this Manila envelope, and it's addressed to Isaac Morehouse. Uh, my last name is spelled wrong, and the envelope is sealed with a piece of, uh, <laughs> sealed with a piece of scotch tape. So this is just like a really chintzy, you know, homemade job here. Um, 
I open it up. It's from the town of Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, where I live. Praxis Inc., Isaac Morehouse. And again, my last name is spelled wrong, which is weird because Praxis is registered <laughs> with my name spelled correctly. So someone did not pull this from a database. They literally typed it by hand and spelled it wrong. <clears throat> Business owner. It has come to my attention that you may be conducting business activities within the town, and I cannot locate a current business license for you. I'm like, that's weird. I've been a registered business in South Carolina for, you know, since I started. According to our records, Praxis Inc. registered with the South Carolina Secretary of State with a Mount Pleasant address. Please be advised that Section 1 of the Business License Ordinance says every person engaged in any calling, business, occupation, or profession. I love that they list calling, by the way. Like if you're a street corner, you know, that's my calling. You you must... Uh, Oh, anyone that's listed in the rate classification index portion of this ordinance in whole or in part within the limits of the town of Mount Pleasant is required to pay an annual license tax and obtain a business license. I've enclosed the license applications. The S is in parentheses. So I don't know if it's like they can't decide if it's one or two applications enclosed, but your application information sheet, blah, 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 blah. You have a penalty for every month that you're late et cetera, et cetera. This is due in like a week from the date that I got this. And what's attached is one big long form, uh, town of Mount Pleasant business license application. And there's, you know, all this stuff to fill out there. And then a second form, which is a really badly photocopied, like it's, it looks like someone copied, uh, something and then scanned it to a PDF and then printed it and then copied it again and then scanned it and printed it like a fourth time or something. It's all, it's like all crooked and hard to leave. And it doesn't say what it is. It's just another separate form that says application for business license, but it looks different and it's completely blank. You have to fill out everything. You have to calculate your own taxes, how much you owe to get a business license in the town of Mount Pleasant. So mind you, I have, I'm, I'm, you know, registered, uh, nationally as well as the state of South Carolina. I have never heard, I asked my accountant, he's like, I have not heard of a municipal business license for a town of 75,000 people. Mount Pleasant is a small town. So I'm like, well, this is weird and annoying. So I email, and by the way, the, the letter is signed by the assistant business license official. So this tells me, okay, there's, there's somebody whose full-time job is to be a business license official. And then there's someone whose full-time job is to be an assistant to him, uh, who, who's sealing envelopes with scotch tape and spelling names wrong by hand. So I email the email address on here and I get an, a response from someone who's different. And this is the, a business license technician. Now, I don't know how many technicians there are, but now we have established there are at least three full-time people in the business license office in the town of Mount Pleasant, a town of 75 thousand people. So I, I email saying, Hey, um, I'm going to be moving my office into Charleston out of Mount Pleasant, uh, before the deadline you gave me. So do I still have to do this? According to the, thank you for a response. According to the town's ordinance, you are required to have a town of Mount Pleasant business license as the business is currently based in Mount Pleasant. The licensing should have been obtained prior to conducting business as fully capitalized. You presently are doing business in the town. Yes. You are still required to obtain the license. So basically she said, yes, with a bunch of other words. I said, okay, um, I'll have my accountant get that in, Tammy. Thank you. Just curious, how was I supposed to know I needed this? I've never heard of a municipal business license here, and my company has been around for almost three years in Mount P. Thank you for the response. It is the business owner's responsibility, and business owner is all capitalized as well for some reason. Thank you for your response. It is the business owner's responsibility to obtain the business license, all capitalized. I am sorry that you are not aware. However, it is listed in the town's ordinance, section one, and also section 5A. If you have any other questions, let me know. So 
what I love about this, TK, the reason I'm telling this story is just the contrast, the absurdity, the idea that government exists to provide services that are really beneficial and wouldn't be provided otherwise um, is so absurd. And the idea that they are somehow worth the tax dollars, they are serving us in some way that's beneficial is so absurd because it's so clear who is serving who. Like, I have, there's no reason I can think of in my mind why I would need to pay a ransom to the town of Mount Pleasant so that I can have my business address listed here. I mean, you know, Praxis, we're remote, we're all over the place, employees are everywhere, we're not doing business, we're not like selling stuff on some street corner in Mount Pleasant, there's nothing happening, no transactions that are Mount Pleasant specific, but, so I'm supposed to get this license, but the way that it's done is so funny to me. Can you imagine if I got a physical letter from Amazon that was sealed with scotch tape that had my name spelled wrong, even though it's spelled right on my Amazon official account, and it said, you know, uh, it has come to our attention that you're an Amazon Prime user. Amazon Prime users are all supposed to pay this small fee and do this thing. Here's a physically printed out piece of paper attached. You need to fill it out with a pen and fill out a physical check and mail it to us. Thanks. And then if I emailed and said, hey, how come I never heard about this? They said, oh, you should have known. Everyone was supposed to do this before they even started their Prime account three years ago. You should have read it in subsection 15ZA5, you know? Can you imagine like saying, well, uh, hey, I'll do it, but but I never heard about this. I mean, contrast that even even my my local oil change person or my local lawn guy, I'll get an email that will say it's time to update your X, Y and Z. And then if I you know, and I can go online and with one click, I can have it paid. I can have it done. And if I say, hey, I didn't know about this, they'll say, I'm really sorry. I hope this didn't catch you by surprise. Um, this is the why the why we do this and where it came about. Let me know if you have any problems. No, no, no. It's not like you were supposed to know ahead of time. When you, when I came to Mount Pleasant, I guess the first thing I was supposed to do was find the town ordinance and read through the whole thing and see all of the things that I'm <laughs> obligated to do and make sure I send them in to this office that employs at least three people uh, sending harassing, harassing letters. Anyway, the whole thing, I was really ticked off at the time. <laughs> whatever. It's crazy. It's absurd. It makes no sense to me. It's horrible customer service, if that's what you can call it. But, but it's not, I mean, they don't, they don't have customers, you know? Um, at least there's a tiny bit of competition where I can just move my address to another town and, and avoid this absolute extortionary racket. So that's my opening story. It's a bit of a rant, but I actually think it segues nicely. Go ahead. Well, I just want to say, uh, I, I had a, a parking ticket that I got a few weeks ago and I, I like to take care of that stuff right away because, you know, they stick you with those those heavy fines. So I came home, you know, try to get online and pay the parking ticket. And it said it's not in the database <laughs> yet because and I'm like, OK, like I know they do this electronically when they give you the ticket. But whatever, I'll, I'll accept a little bit of inefficiency. It's the government. What are you supposed to, to, supposed to expect? So I checked back the next day. Same thing. Literally four days in a row, I kept going online to check. And then I was like, you know what? Screw this. I'll just give it a full week. It's the government. It's not a business that actually has to please customers or risk going out of business. So I understand. After a full week, I try to go back on there the next week. Still can't do it. Then I had to waste my time getting on the phone and finally getting someone that I could talk to to figure out how I could pay my ticket. And I just remember joking with my wife saying, I have never had a harder time in my life getting money to someone <laughs> never had a more difficult I am time trying like, to only the government. I, I had one of those two where <laughs> yes. they transferred me i had to call it was a ticket from tennessee when i was traveling between michigan and, and uh south carolina 
And I had to call like four different offices and they kept transferring me to different places. All I wanted was an address to send a check and I couldn't get it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean that, that is the luxury you have when you know you will always be in business regardless of uh, the poor job you, you do at satisfying okay. your customers. That is the luxury so, of the So state. TK, you went on the Tom Woods show uh, last week and you talked about you know uh, an article that you wrote, No, We Are Not All Screwed which is basically, hey, look, this election, whatever's going on in politics, it's not the end of the world. Like, chill out. There's other things you can do. There are more important things for living and obtaining uh, obtaining and maintaining freedom in your life than what happens politically. And you got some comments on that. And I think kind of this, this little tiny silly story of the, you know, the petty tyranny of the Mount Pleasant business license office, all caps, um, is a great example of how it can feel like, okay, this local political scene is so annoying and I'm being harassed. I got to pay this money. Like there's, there's no escape. I have no options. So, you know, I have to care about politics as many people might say, um, which I strongly disagree with. And I know you do too, but how, how would you respond to that in general? Or maybe it's better to, to share some of the comments and, and critiques you got after going on Tom's show and, and kind of take it from there. Yeah, well, you know, one one thing I think is interesting is whenever you preach any kind of message or advocate any kind of philosophy that remotely borders on motivation, inspiration, self-empowerment, you have to be far more negative than anyone else because people just don't give you the permission to say anything remotely inspirational unless you first add a bunch of prefaces about how crappy life is, right? So you can't just walk up to someone and say, hey, man, you can improve your life if you work hard. No, 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 no. People don't let you talk like that. You have to actually say, look, man, I know life stinks. I know life is really difficult. You can't change it overnight. It's going to feel crappy and it's going to feel crappy for a really long time. And you're going to have to pull up, with, put up with a lot of pain and a lot of nonsense. And you're going to hate it for 99 percent of the time. But if you're willing to eat crow and give it everything you got and put your life on the line, you might be able to have some possibilities that you underestimated. Then people will let you get away. You know, um, and you and I have joked before at like how comical it is that any negative or pessimistic message gets a total free pass. You can say life sucks and people will just hear that in the most charitable way. They'll just hear that as, oh, Isaac's having a bad day because he said <laughs> life sucks. You are not. No, one, no you are one's going to say it's easy for you to say your life is sucking. You know, right, mine's right. great. Or, hey, it yeah. depends. Some people some people have good lives. Don't forget about that. <laughs> right, right. Or Isaac, I'm, I'm a little concerned, man, because. You're a role model, and when you say life sucks, you makes it you make it sound as if there's literally nothing good going on in the world. And hey, man, it takes a lot of good things to happen just to keep your heart beating. I mean, at least just kind of hit at that. No one's gonna do that. You can just say life sucks. Uh, we're all screwed. Everything's going to hell, and people will just be like, "Yep, yep, mm-hmm, mm-hmm." He sure is right. That guy keeps it real. He speaks the truth. But if but if you say, "Hey, look, no matter how bad life gets." You still got to find motivation to get out of the bed, get out of bed in the morning and give it the best you got, because the only alternative is lying down and giving up. And, and that's just a message that sort of unnerves people. And while the reception from my appearance on The Tom Woods Show was mostly positive, uh, there, there were a number of concerns expressed, questions asked and objections made in spite of what, things what, that what, I said in the article. Well, the most common one was was the notion of my message being delusional. 
You know, so th there was one comment, for instance, and th there were some messages that I received as well that wishful thinking isn't going to help anyone, TK. This world really is screwed up and we're not going to get anywhere by advocating delusion. Well, wishful thinking is the source of everything that has helped anyone. <laughs> well, well, you know what's funny Stop about wishful thinking? Action. And this doesn't... Yeah, yeah. Well, this doesn't directly address the objection, but here's the funny thing about wishful thinking. Um, no, None of these people who are concerned about wishful thinking ever seem to come forward when people are walking around talking about how Trump or Clinton or Bernie Sanders is going to save us. I mean, people are constantly putting their faith in a political system that disappoints them over and over again. You know how people make these Armageddon-like predictions every four years? There's a prediction I make every four years that's always right. It has never been wrong. And that is nearly half the country is going to be heartbroken after election day because the political system failed them yet again. That's always going to be true. And, and yet no one considers it to be wishful thinking when people say these sorts of things, like everything is going to be okay. I mean, it's, it's almost like, you know, if, if you have a crappy relationship with your family and Trump wins or Clinton wins, all of a sudden your kids who hate you are going <laughs> to like you. All of a sudden your horrible relationship with your spouse is going to be good. All of a sudden your poor self-esteem is going to be cool. All of a sudden your horrible diet that's killing you and that's going to make you have a heart attack before you're 40, that's going to be good. All of a sudden your unproductive lifestyle where you don't actually get up and do anything and contribute something to the world other than your outrage at what's going wrong, that's going to fix it, it itself. Sorry, it man. Sports, DK. It's always a little bit... Um shocking and, and disheartening when my team loses a big game and I'm up late watching the game and I go to bed. I am so depressed. I'm grumpy in the morning. I feel like, like this wasn't supposed to happen. The world can't go on. And I get up the next morning and I realize yeah. that, uh, my kids are completely unaware. They don't care. They're just going along. My wife is like, are you grumpy because of the game? That's stupid. She's just doing her, the rest of the world just keeps mm -hmm. going on. They're so callous. And I realize it's really all in my head. Nothing horrible actually happened except for what I choose to give into, which in the case of sports, I kind of enjoy indulging in that. Uh, but it, yes, it's that shocking revelation that um, it really doesn't matter unless I assign value to it. Oh, yeah, absolutely, man. And, you know, one of my favorite comments, a, a person said, your advice about making the best of a situation and working around the systems that hold you back is generally very good advice. Generally, it's very good. Um, but but there are exceptions to it, apparently. Uh, then he says, none of this, however, means that we aren't completely screwed because we are. Now, I find it funny that the notion of making the best out of your situation, whatever it is, that that's considered something that's generally good <laughs> there, advice that might have exceptions. There are times where it's better to make uh, the worst of your situation. <laughs> Right, right. I mean, it's literally the only possible alternative to giving up and doing nothing whatsoever in a situation where things are not going your way. Like, it's literally the only way that a human being could possibly survive when they are facing adversity. Like, these aren't motivational platitudes. I mean, these are just the harsh realities of life. The, the way I like to put it is this. I'll, I'll combine a little, a little Mises with just a little everyday observation. Here, we can basically say, here are the two axioms of, of what you might want to call optimism. You could say, number one, man must act, all right? That's pretty uncontroversial, man must act. 
Your actions can be passive, they can be subtle, but you gotta act. So even if you sit on the couch, fold your arms and say, nope, 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 I'm not going to act, TK, look at me. That in, in and of itself is an action. Going to sleep, sitting down, breathing, doing a Zen meditation, you're still acting. Man must act. Number two, life is hard, all right? Life is hard. So unless you're just one of the rare few people that have it easy and don't know what it's like to experience problems like the rest of us, life is hard. Now, no one has it hard as me or as you in our own eyes, right? Um, there are always people who seem to have it easy, but in relation to people's own concept of difficulty, life is hard. So you combine those two statements, what do you get? Statement number one, man must act. Statement number two, life is hard. When you combine it, you get something very simple, which is man must act in spite of the fact that life is hard. That's not rocket science, right? I mean, you must act in spite of the fact that life is hard. So given that fact, the question to be asked is, what is the basis for action? And, and one of the things that surprises me when people dismiss messages of hope as delusional, especially when you go out of your way like I always do, and I, I say things like, I don't preach a philosophy of delusion. I don't preach that we should deny the bad things. I just preach that we should stop using that as a basis for no longer taking chances, no longer exploring possibilities. But like, so, so what is the problem here? The problem is we have lost our ability to imagine a basis for action apart from having blind faith in positive outcomes. That is literally like the only way we can conceive of doing something new. You know, so when you say something like, hey, don't lay down without a fight, just because government is corrupt doesn't mean you just have to give up hope and go sit in a corner and not do anything. That's delusional to people because what they think you're saying is, hey, guys, everything in the universe is flowery and ecstatic and it smells good and it's beautiful and it's fluffy and it's full of lollipops. And if you get out there and you give it the best chance you have, an angel will swoop down from heaven and give you a hug. I mean, that's what people hear when you say, don't give up. But, but, but the message is really like, hey man, you don't have any choice. Like life is crappy and you can either do nothing or you can try something new. And you don't try something new because you have faith that it's going to work. That conflicts with the very definition of trying. I mean, trying is a really simple concept. I mean, my parents taught me trying when I was a kid and trying as they taught it to me is simply the process of doing something without being sure that you can do it or doing something without knowing if it's going to work. So when my dad said to me, when my dad handed me a basketball for the first time in my life and he said, all right, son, give it a try. My dad didn't say, because I know you're going to make it and I have confidence in your ability. My dad didn't say, because God is so good and the universe is so magical, if you take this shot, something super awesome is going to happen. No, he just said, take a shot. And why did he say it? Because it was something that I had never done before. And in the process of doing it, I would discover something new and I would grow. And you know what? I no, it's funny. I, I just talked yesterday to a, a guy who's a great guy trying to start a, he, he's launching a, an entrepreneurial venture and he said, Hey, let me just bounce a few ideas off you. And so we were chatting and he said, uh, he said, you know, I've got this thing that I need to produce in order to, to bring my venture to market, but it's going to cost money to produce it. Um, I don't have the money up front, but you know, I could pre-sell the product in order to get the money to then produce it and meet the demand. And I was like, yeah, why not? That's a great idea. And he's, <laughs> he said, well, I don't know. Like if, if I could, if, if, if you could guarantee me, 
He's like, I'm not asking you to do this, but if you could, if you could guarantee me that it would work, then I would do it. And I, and I said, wouldn't we all, you know, but that is, that's not entrepreneurship. Creating a venture by definition is launching into the unknown. You are putting something out there and you don't know if people will buy it or you are selling something and you don't know if you can fulfill those orders. You believe that you can. That's why you started it in the first place. But you can't. I can't give you a guarantee that you're going to pre-sell the right amount and you're going to be able to produce them and ship them in time. No one can. If they could, it wouldn't. There would be no room for innovation if everyone had that kind of knowledge. We'd be at a perfect standstill where all resources would already be perfectly allocated, like the old, the old, you know neoclassical economist who says there are no $20 bills laying on the sidewalk because if there were someone else would have already found them, you know, like everything is perfectly, like we don't know. That's why there is space for innovation precisely because of that. Now this, this guy is an awesome guy and he was like, you're right, you're right. I just needed a pep talk and he's going out and he's doing it anyway. But it was just one of those great moments. And I, I use that a lot in terms of asking people to think about whether or not they should pursue something is if you're willing to fail, if you know that it's unknown and you still want to do it anyway, that's a good sign that it's worth going after. If you never get past the point where you're like, well, if I knew for sure it was guaranteed to work, I'd do it. Then you're not somebody who should probably be doing that. I mean, this is common in sales. If you're selling a marketing tool and your your potential customer says, you need to guarantee me that it will absolutely work 100%. Otherwise, I'm not putting in a dime. That's probably not a customer you want to work with because they're, they're, they're actually operating from a point of, not enough skin in the game and not enough willingness to make sure it works, not a commitment to making it work, more on approach of, I want you to guarantee that it's going to work so I don't have to. And that is a recipe, that approach, that mindset is a recipe for increasing the chances of failure. Oh, absolutely, man. You know, um, I, I think too, because you touched on the idea of belief, and I, I think it's important to make a distinction between being a believer and being an entrepreneur or a trier or a creator or a visionary. Because all too often, we depict these kinds of people who create great changes or start revolutions as believers, people that had unflinchable faith in you know, their ability to make something happen. And in many cases, that's not what's going on at all. It's not a matter of people believing that they're going to get a specific result. It's a matter of people simply having no better alternatives to pursue. So this reminds me of the question you posed last week in the beginning. You said your three favorite words are compare to what? I think if you ask though that question about every action step you take, that will lead to much better decisions and it will eliminate a lot of the objections that we have the luxury of making. You know, so like, well, you know, I'm not a really positive person. And I don't believe that trying to create change is going to really work. So, you know, I think that's a bad idea and that's delusional and that's a waste of time. All right. Compared to what? Compared to what? You know, because the question to, the question to always ask is, number one, is, is there a conceivable pos, uh, positive outcome, uh, whether it's probable or not? Is there a conceivable positive outcome? Number two, do you have any better alternatives to pursue? Because if you do, I mean, you don't need to be reading anybody's books or listening to anybody's conversations or you just need to be out there doing it. If you got something better you can do, you know, just just do it. But if you if there isn't a better alternative that you can pursue, what other option is there? So some things are born out of necessity, not positivity. You know, if man must act and if life is hard 
and man must act in spite of the fact that life is hard, then that means you got to get out there and do things, even if you are screwed out of necessity. This is what I love so much about sports. And I know everybody can't relate to this, but I love the thing about sports is because even when you are outmatched, even when you are outnumbered, even if you're playing a top ranked team and you have a bunch of losers, you don't have the luxury that people give themselves in everyday life of saying, well, we're going to lose. So I'm just going to sit on the bench because in sports, you have to have some pride and self-respect. And you have to say, look, I know that this team is better than us. And I know that they're probably going to kick our butts and beat us by 30 and completely mop up the floor with us. But there are other reasons for getting out there and playing besides having a guarantee that I'm going to win. Is it possible that I can pull off an upset? Maybe, but that's not why I play. I play because I respect myself, because I have pride as a human being, and because it's a million times better than you the alternative, which gets you know me nowhere. more is the very specific moment. I love when the shot clock is just about to run out, and a team has the ball in basketball, and they have to get off a shot before the shot clock goes off. And if a guy has the ball in his hands and he sees there's one second on the shot clock and he is a terrible three-point shooter, he's five feet behind the line, he's got two guys on him, he's going to take the worst, stupidest shot in the history of basketball because compared to not trying to shoot at all, it's better. If he doesn't try to shoot, the other team just gets the ball back anyway. He might as well heave it up there. You never know. He might get fouled. The ball might bounce around and get tipped in by one of his teammates. He might make a crazy shot. I love that moment where, you know, if if we if we look at life as compare this terrible three-point shooter, compare, you know, Shaq is five feet behind the three-point line with two guys on him, and he throws it up behind his head backwards with one hand. Compare that to Steph Curry wide open in the corner with a beautiful three. And you're going to say, Shaq, that was a stupid shot. Why would you ever take that? But that's not how life is. You don't get to you don't get to say, Shaq, you should have been wide open in the corner and you should also have been Steph Curry. And then you should have taken that shot. Shaq doesn't have that option. He's in a position contextually where the shot clock's about to run out. And his option is do nothing or do this. And in that, and when you compare it to the real world, things take on a whole different, you know, a whole different aspect. And, and I think the status quo bias is so strong. So let's get back to the people critiquing your sort of Tom Wood stuff. It's like, oh, well, TK, you know, what I want is this and that and that law to be overturned and this politician to lose and this government department to be dismantled. And I don't see how all of your personal freedom and empowerment is going to make that happen. But they're they're comparing, they're, they're taking something that they want and they have no possible world in which they can achieve that in the next month or year. They, they have, there's nothing, there is no other option that achieves that. So they're comparing an imagined reality and they're saying, well, TK, your course of action doesn't lead to my imagined reality. That's like saying, Shaq, your course of action doesn't lead to a high percentage shot. But there is no other option in that context. Like, okay, what are you planning to do Com compared to what you're, you're saying that because TK's new proposal won't immediately guarantee to lead you to this nirvana that you have in mind, we shouldn't do it. There's nothing that will lead you to that nirvana. You need to compare it to the relevant alternatives in that situation. Oh, dude, one of my favorite, this, this was like hilarious to me. One of my favorite objections was a guy saying, hey, your title is naive. We are completely screwed and there's no way to innovate around it. And <laughs> so what phony, is phony, wait, hold on. No, no, but that's not the best part. That's not the best part. That's, so that's typical. Still, the uh, best like, part. Sending you an email. What's the point? Oh, oh, trust me. It gets so much better. So, so after he tells me that, 
he then he then tells me that phony solutions like the one I'm the ones I'm offering, which is which is try and not lay down without a fight, even if you don't know what happens. Phony solutions like the ones I offer are a big distraction from the real solutions that can actually save people. And and I'm just thinking to myself, wait, 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 wait. wait. <laughs> Is it possible to have those two beliefs at the same time and be logically consistent? So if, if, if we are completely screwed, no matter what we do, then is it even possible to distract people from the real solutions that can save them? You know, like, you know, like to, if I'm truly distracting people from the real answers, then that means there are hey, real know, answers. And if there are real answers, we're not completely screwed no matter what we do. That's a example of something we talk, we talk about a lot, which is this sort of uh, call out culture or criticism culture. I think that that demonstrates this desire that we have. And I want to just pick on this one guy, but this is common. I mean, we all have this tendency. We want to be able we we hate comparative analysis because comparative analysis, uh, to, to paraphrase Peter Betke, the economist, puts parameters on our utopias or it forces us to be real about maybe beliefs that we have. So if this guy, you know, is to say there is a way to improve the world. Now, you guys would share that common ground and then he would say, I think it's this. And you would say, I think it's this. Now you can step by step compare which one is more likely to be effective. But we don't want that comparative analysis. It's hard work and the thing that we favor might lose out. So we want to avoid comparative analysis while maintaining the ability to criticize an approach that we don't like. So we say, look, nothing's going to work. So basically we have nothing to compare. We can't, we can't say it is possible to achieve this end. Now we need to compare different, different means. No, no, no. It's not possible anyway. And by the way, the means that you're using are worse. And it's like, wait, you can't do both. You know, if you're going to, if you're going to find that common ground that change is possible, now let's do a comparative analysis. If you don't think change is possible, you have no business criticizing any one approach to change, you know? Oh, absolutely, man. All right. So let me cover one more specific objection and we can segue this into the way people think about life in general and, and, and how to approach this process of trying to improve your life. Because I, I think this particular objection is actually quite characteristic of the way people respond to lots of messages that tell them they can take charge of their lives. So a little bit of background. When I was on the on Tom's show, one of the things I, I said, because he brought up the topic of conspiracy theories, and, and, and I made the point that a conspiracy theory is kind of like a backhanded compliment against the people that are conspired against, because you never establish a conspiracy against someone that isn't powerless. The example that I use would be ants. Human beings don't conspire against ants because we don't look at ants as a threat. We can just step over them or step around them. And if there's ever a conflict between the two, we win. So we don't, we don't waste our time conspiring against them. But if you conspire against someone, that means you're threatened by them. You, you see them as having the ability to undermine you or overthrow you. So if you ever find out that you're being conspired against, then that means the conspirer looks at you as powerful and you should take advantage of the opportunity to figure out what is this power you have? What is this possibility you have? What is it about yourself that makes them feel so threatened and get excited about discovering that and seeing if there's a way for you to exploit that in your own pursuit of freedom? Now, here is one of the responses that I got. I conspired with my friend to kill my wife for insurance money. Good for her that people successfully conspiring against her to get killed. Tomorrow she can wake up and figure 
out why people are conspiring against her. All right. So 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 basically the guy saying, oh, OK, that's great. I should be happy that people are conspiring against me now. So me and my buddy are conspiring to kill my wife for insurance money. And she should get excited about that and wake up in the morning and, you know, spend her time trying to figure out why people are conspiring against her. So let's do a little bit of comparative analysis. All right. Here's my response to this. And then and then we move into the bigger picture topic. If it were really true that you were conspiring to kill your wife. Would it not be a good idea for her to respond to the discovery of this horrible fact by trying to figure out why she's being conspired against? Would the true basis for your agenda not be useful information to your wife? If your wife were to wake up and realize that you were really conspiring against her in order to get the insurance money, would she not have more options for how she could deal with this horrible predicament? You know, in what universe are people better off by responding to conspiracies in a way that downplays the serious consideration of their own powers and possibilities. So now, again, I'm not giving out any names because I don't want to pick out. I don't want to pick on this one person, and I don't want people to get distracted and think this is just about what I said on Tom Woods' show because this is a, a, a big picture issue that comes up a lot in everyday life. People often assume that in order to be motivated and inspired during bad times. You have to be motivated and inspired about the bad times. People often, you know, you know what I mean? Like people assume that in order for you to respond to opposition effectively, you got to be able to look at the opposition and say, oh, it's OK. Oh, it's not that bad. And, and that's the only basis for action. But there are some really horrifying things going on in life. And all of us have horrifying elements to our lives. And if anyone is ever going to create any kind of change, any kind of change in their life, whether it's in their government or in their financial situation or in their marriage or whatever it may be, that means you're going to have to start from a place of saying, all right, my situation stinks. I absolutely hate it. But what's the best alternative for me to take given that it stinks? Is it for me to adopt a self-defeating philosophy that says no matter what I do, it won't make a difference? Or is it about me saying, hey, maybe no matter what I do will make a difference, but I'm not arrogant enough to assume that I know everything. And since non-action is guaranteed to get me nowhere or non-constructive action, yeah. you know, I'm going to at least take the most constructive path I can take. And I think that's something that people miss out a lot in everyday life because they get distracted by this notion that in order to create change, they have to be happy with the way things are or they have to downplay it and say, oh, it's not that or, bad. Or, yeah, again, could compare a particular action that they think is not likely to work well to something working 100%, even though there is no option that would work 100%. You know, uh, this is exemplified really well in a really tiny scene from the show Game of Thrones. Uh, I'm not going to give away any spoilers or anything. Um, and mm -hmm. forewarning Game of Thrones is an incredibly graphic, uh, and lewd show. It's not a family show for some of the family listeners, but there's this, there's this amazing scene where one of the characters has had, he's just gone through really horrible stuff and had, um, you know, kind of a, a, a massive kind of defeat and he gets a second chance more or less. And he says, I am not interested. I'm not going to take it. I'm not going to try to do anything and this other character says, well, you know, why not? He says, because I already tried and I failed. 
And the other character, he needs to get this person to, to be roused to action. And you think he's going to give him some speech like failed. No, what you really did was this or yeah, but this time it's going to be different. You're going to succeed because this and this and this, or you have the second chance. That's for a reason. Fate must have, you think he's going to give one of these. And he says, super short. He says, I, you did, you failed. Now go fail again. And the minute he says that you fail, go fail again. It immediately strips away this big story and this pity party and the character realizes, oh yeah, I guess like what are my other options anyway? I mean, so not doing anything is guaranteed to make me fail. Trying again, I'll probably fail again, but either way, right? There, It just sort of, it presents him with the reality of his situation instead of some idea of what the situation could be, even though it's not possible. And I just thought it was a really, I thought it was a really powerful scene and an exemplification of this, um, of this concept. So, so I, I think that's a beautiful concept. And, and I'm realizing after thinking about that, that I, I've depicted this situation of doing something as, as something that doesn't really require any risk. Like, Hey, what do you got to lose? And, and I realized that if you're going to try something during adversity, there actually is something you do have to give up. And, and I think it's a big part of why many people don't give it up, not everybody. And that is you got to give up the luxury of being arbitrarily outraged. And I think that's a difficult thing for a lot of people to give up. Here's what I mean. If you want to create an impression of being intelligent, sophisticated, well-informed, and courageous, there's hardly any better way than to be outraged at some form of injustice or wrongdoing. I mean, I can get instant respect if I go on social media right now and point out how outraged I am at the Hillary Clinton email scandal or something like that. That's an easy way to gain respect. Like, yeah, this guy cares about freedom. He cares about truth because I'm outraged. And it doesn't cost me anything, really. It's, it's a pretty cheap way of gaining respect. I don't have to change my lifestyle. I don't have to change the way I treat myself or the way I treat people. I don't have to adopt any new habits or confront any weaknesses or fears. All I got to do is be outraged at something that a lot of people are already outraged by. On the other hand, creating change or just even trying to create change is really risky because if you try it and you fail, you're going to have a lot of people who don't try and who don't fail kind of looking at you, laughing at you, criticizing you, making all kind of, you know, um, comments about or, or worse it. yet, and or worse no. yet, being really nice. I mean, like, hey, whatever happened with that thing? Did it? Oh, it didn't work out. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Which is like almost worse. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but but it takes a lot of responsibility. You have to actually change your lifestyle, and and I think we give outrage a little too much easy respect in our culture, and we give the respect away so easily that a lot of people have become addicted to outrage. So there are a lot of people who are under the illusion that they're doing a whole lot of stuff to contribute to a free society because they're constantly outraged at the government or they're constantly outraged at things that are going wrong in the world or they're constantly outraged at all the stupid, irrational people that are making bad decisions that make their lives worse. And really, that's not contributing to a freer society. That's just having an emotional experience. Hey, to, get, to get back to the basketball analogy, uh, you know, the, the, the player who says, I'm just going to, I'm going to be outraged at the other team or at the refs and therefore I'll be helping. Uh, you know, what often that results in technical fouls and getting thrown out and, you know, making things where it's not enough to just be angry. 
Um, in fact, not only is it not enough, it's often uh, the absolute opposite of what you need. Oh, absolutely. You and I have seen plenty of exa- plenty examples. I mean, Rasheed Wallace, had the former three championships. Detroit Pistons. But of course, oh, without yeah. him, they wouldn't have even had one. So you got to take the good and the bad. Right. You got to take both. But, you know, there are some guys that literally cost you the game because of that sort of self-righteous outrage. It, I mean, we understand it. We get it. You're justified at being outraged. But you can actually cost your team a game if you mistake your ability to yell at a referee for cheating if you mistake that for a productive response that's going to help the team meet the goal. Faith. You You mentioned the word faith a couple times throughout this about, um, you know, having faith in your creative power, having faith in your ability. That is one of the most misunderstood concepts. And so many people, I think, hear that and think, okay, so you're telling someone to believe in magical, wonderful outcomes, despite all evidence to the contrary, or to believe in something they have no evidence for. Faith is just believing in something that you have no evidence or something that is completely illogical, something that contradicts their actual experiences, something that they can't reason to. Reason will not make you believe in it. So therefore you have to just believe in it anyway with this thing called faith. And I think it's complete warped, like misunderstanding perversion of the concept of faith. C.S. Lewis, I think, does a really good job of describing what faith is. And I don't I don't mean just like religious faith. I just mean this concept of faith as we've been talking about things like faith in your own creative ability. Lewis says faith is not at all about believing in something that you have no proof for or something that's illogical. It's the opposite. When you have reasoned to something and understood and analyzed something and come to a conclusion in a moment of clear thinking and a lot of work, not just a moment, sort of a lifetime, and you have arrived at this belief and you know, wow, I saw the light, I saw the truth, I know this is true, I've tested it. Faith is the ability to remind yourself of that in moments where you don't remember the arguments, in moments where it's much easier to pretend like you never made that discovery. It's remembering the logical arguments that you know were true in the moment where it'd be more convenient to pretend that they weren't. So a simple example would be maybe you do a ton of research on your diet and your health and your habits and you discover, uh, as I have, that dairy is not good for me. I'm allergic to dairy. I know. And I've spent years testing out different diets, getting rid of dairy. I've, I've done food allergy tests. I've done all this stuff. I have become convinced. I went in skeptical. I didn't think that I was allergic to dairy or had any problem, but I have become convinced through logic. There's everything about it that's that's logical, it's reasonable. And so I know this. I have this knowledge. Faith is not magically believing that, you know, I'll stop taking dairy and my problems will be solved. Faith is the moment when I'm in front of that cheese pizza and it looks amazing and I start to think, is it really so bad to eat dairy? I mean, it's not going to kill me. It's not that big of a deal. You know, I don't even know if those tests were accurate. Can I really be sure? Deep down, I know that I know that this is true. I know that it's not good for me. But in the moment, I'm starting to forget the arguments. The smell of that melty cheese starts to warp my ability to reason. And when I am too flawed to reason and take all the time to remind myself of the arguments in the moment, Faith, I'm having faith in myself, in my own reason. I'm having faith that the the conclusion I came to in a moment of sound judgment was in fact the right conclusion and I'm going to stick with that. That's what faith is. So when it comes to your own power, when you are reading books, you are discovering and you realize you have those aha moments like, yes, I get it. 
It is ultimately freedom begins with me. It's me. I am not controlled by these external authorities. You have those philosophical breakthroughs. Have faith in your own mind in the moments where it's easy to forget that, to get caught up in the emotion, to see some negative news story, and to start to feel yourself believing that everything's out of your control. Faith is not believing with no evidence randomly, just wishing and hoping that everything's good. It's remembering, believing in your own capacity to reason and having faith in the conclusion that you came to yourself at another moment. You know, there was a show, I believe the show was Fear Factor, where they did this social experiment where they took a group of people and they took them to a morgue and the lights were on and every and everyone was in there together. And, and they asked the people like, hey, are, are you scared of being inside a morgue? They're like, no, why would we be scared of being inside the morgue? I mean, the people in here are dead, so we're in the safest place we could possibly be. All right, great. They said all the right things we'd expect rational people to say. But then they did this challenge where they turned off the lights in the morgue. And each person in the group had to walk through the entire morgue by themselves. And each person, as they did it, you know, they would also put on some music, like scary horror movie type music. And each person, as they walked through the morgue, started freaking out, even though all they had did was turn out the lights and put on horror music. Now, rational thinking would tell you that the mere turning off the lights in a place that you know is safe and the mere playing of horror music does not make you in danger. But what was happening Rational there, thinking is not enough in those moments. You need to have faith in your reason. Exactly, exactly. And, and what C.S. Lewis talked about, the, the art of holding on to what you know to be true in spite of your shifting moods. The music changes your mood. The lights being off changes your mood. Now, can you hold on to what logic compels you to believe as true, even though you're not in the best mood, that's a really, really difficult thing to do. And I think that's a good illustration of what happens when people lose faith a lot of times. It's not that they're being hyper-rational. It's, being the, it's, it's that they're being the very opposite of rational and they're placing greater faith in their emotions. Here's another thing I want to say too, though, because I, I tend to take more of a skeptical approach to, to my relationship to faith. I, I tend to put a greater emphasis on doubt rather than belief. So for me, I understand faith to be the willingness to be skeptical of your own nonsense just as much as you're skeptical of other people's nonsense. Um, and, and we're always willing to, to criticize other people's nonsense, but it's it's our own BS that gets us. It's rarely the BS of others. It's the way we BS ourselves. You know, um, what, one great movie illustration of this is in Child's Play, where you have this little boy who has this doll, and the doll talks to him and tries to do all these bad things to him whenever the parents aren't around. And he's always telling the parents, this doll is talking, this, dog is, this doll is trying to torment me, and nobody ever believes him. So there's a scene where he's upstairs in his room, and he's screaming, and his parents and his sister, they run up, and they're like, what's wrong? What's going on? And they see the boy on his bed, tied up all fours, completely, he can't move. And the doll is standing, I mean, is sitting on top of him, and it looks like it might have been doing something to him, but now the doll is lifeless, of course. And the boy says, set me free, untie me, this doll tied me up. And, and they untie him, and they all yell at him, and they say, stop playing these foolish games. You know that this doll isn't alive and that dolls don't talk. We're tired of this nonsense. And now if you look around the boy's room, you see there are no windows in the room. He's on the top floor. There's literally no one else in the house but him. And as I'm watching this scene, I'm thinking, wait, 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 wait. Guys, I don't believe in monsters either. Trust me. I, I also believe that everything this boy says is total nonsense. But – 
guys, do you realize that what you're saying is also nonsense? Because it's physically impossible for this boy to have tied himself up like this. So for you to say he did this to himself, that's equally as nonsensical yeah. as his belief just, just in because, we, Just we, because we, his argument strikes you as crazy doesn't mean you ought to uh, believe in your own argument. That's equally as crazy. You know, you you can be agnostic about it, but but to to say that's a bad argument, therefore this other one must be a good argument, uh, is is a horrible structure of uh, you know way of approaching those things. Had they merely said, "Wait a minute, something is off," and even though I don't believe his nonsense, I'm not going to buy into the nonsensical idea that he did it to himself. What's really going on here, and how did this happen? They would have gotten a lot further than 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 they got, and that's what faith is all about. So I want to take the last 10, 15 minutes here. Um, Zach Slayback asked me just before we got on if we would chat about something that I posted on Facebook a couple times. Uh, I've been posting about it, and uh, also mm -hmm. in, in the Praxis Slack group, and I've been thinking about this a lot. And it's funny. The day I posted it, my wife was like, hey, I saw that thing you posted on Facebook. Did you look at the newest Wired magazine? Because apparently we started getting Wired magazine. I don't know how. I don't subscribe to magazines. It just came. Um, and on the, the front cover, it said the end of code. And uh, maybe it had a question mark or something. And I said, no, I didn't see that. I just happened to be thinking about this a lot. So the topic is is coding. And what how valuable is coding? Is this a skill that absolutely, here's the question, is coding a skill that soon everyone will need to have or a skill that soon no one will need to have? And I got to thinking about this in reading that phenomenal essay series that I've mentioned a few times uh, in the last few Friday episodes um, by Venkatesh Rao called uh, Breaking Smart. Breaking Smart season one, if you Google it, it's a series of essays, phenomenal. And Rao lays out in this series of essays, season one is all about the idea that software is eating the world. This, this phrase coined by uh, Mark Andreessen. And he says, there, there is, this is, software is the third great soft technology in human history. Language was the first. This thing that emerges as this medium for people to communicate ideas with each other, incredibly, obviously valuable. It's what allowed for societies, all these other things. Money is the second which is another medium that allows even people who don't speak the same language can exchange uh, services and goods and it allows trade and markets and all these things and modern finance. Um, and these are, these are open, sort of open source, uh, emergent soft technologies. Software is the third and he sort of makes his case for this and I find it incredibly compelling and, and sort of makes the case that this is even more of a massive um, innovation perhaps than language or money, which is um, a bold claim, but very, very compelling. So as I'm thinking about it, I'm always hearing all these people constantly, you know, every, you should learn to code, learn to code. Everyone should learn to code. This is the digital future, coding, coding, coding. And, you know, coding jobs are commanding really high salaries right now. There's a huge demand. And I'm always a hugely big picture person. And I'm never one of these who likes the idea of, you know, uh, okay, what career commands the highest pay? That's what I should go into. Or that's what my children should go into. I mean, to me, that's just kind of crazy. Like, what are you good at? What do you enjoy? Um, find that. And if you're doing something that's uniquely awesome, you're going to be able to command money doing it. Like, and don't, don't force yourself to be a coder. Actually, uh, somebody emailed me this week saying, I feel I'm not really into math or sciences and stuff like that, but I feel like I have to be because those are where all the careers of the future are. I need to be an engineer or a coder. And I just thought that was so absurd, like creativity and innovation uh, are not going to, you know, you just, coding is the only career. So anyway, I got to thinking about it and here is more or less what I sort of posted on Facebook. I kind of posed this question, will coding be needed by everyone or by no one? 
And my take is this, you sticking with the soft technologies comparison, language, money, I think coding is to software what penmanship is to language. Now think about that for a minute and let it sink in. So language, this amazing medium, this amazing uh, you know, phenomenon that allowed all these amazing innovations and things in, in, human, in the human race, there was a time when language first emerged where hardly, nobody really needed penmanship. And then a few, a very few elites learned penmanship and needed it and it was incredibly valuable. Pretty soon, it became so high demand, pretty much everybody needed it. Anybody who learned penmanship and to be able to write and to write well and clear was going to have a huge advantage. It was in huge demand. And then it became to a world that we're in today where nobody needs it. Really, nobody needs it unless you're doing it just for artistic purposes. Because it was replaced by typing, uh, by voice, with telephones. Language now has so many other expressions by video that writing, physically writing with a pen in clear handwriting is of essentially no importance anymore. Language is more important than it's ever been, just as important or more important, but the media used to, to, to uh, you know, work with language and communicate and convey ideas have changed. And um, so we've built platforms that have made penmanship basically irrelevant. And I think of coding in the same way. Uh, you, you know, a small number of elites need to build code so that we can start to access software. And now it's this huge demand where like everybody, there's so much demand for coding. Go learn to code, learn to code. But coding imagine a world in where you take something like this game Mario Maker, this little Mario game that my son has where you you can build your own Mario levels. You don't need to know any coding. You drag and drop different things. You, know, you drag and drop a bad guy and a, a block and you build walls and you make the courses with no coding skills. Some coder set up a platform for you to do it without having, uh, without half having to code. Um, and imagine a world, take that the next step further, using voice, using all the things that we have done, used with language, uh, to be able to say, you know, Siri, uh, build me a little level uh, on a game that is two-dimensional with the following rules and parameters, boom, 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 or it's drag and drop, or it's whatever, whether it's a game, whether it's, hey, build me a CRM that is going to index people by last name, and it's going to have this, that, and the other thing. Um I think that's the future. I think that's where it's going. Zach said he sort of disagreed with me. So I wanted to bring that topic up. TK, what are your thoughts, first of all, in general, on the idea that whatever is the hot skill of the day, like, oh, there's so much demand for welders right now. You should go learn welding or everyone should be a coder. What is your response to sort of following those trends versus trying to think of things that are more timeless? And then any thoughts on coding in particular? Yeah, you know, I think trends are absolutely wonderful if your goal is to fit in in the moment and meet a short-term need. If I need to make money right now and the trends are moving in a certain direction and I know that by going out and getting a particular job today or like within the next few months, I can make a lot of money fast, that's great. It's a great way to take advantage of the evidence we have for what's working right now and what might be working for the next couple of years. However, if you're looking for security, if you're looking for confidence about your future, you have to be careful about trends because as you look back on history, we have mountains of data indicating that lots of things that we thought would be around for a really long time tend to not be in existence at all or not as important in the future as we find ways to innovate. Now, I don't know what Zach's arguments are about code, and this is not an expert that I'm too confident to say a whole lot on, but 
I, I actually can't imagine a world in which this becomes increasingly less less uh, important. I don't see this happening as quickly as, let's say, the next five years or anything like that. You know, um, however, if you take a look, for instance, at the way we do things today, like build blogs and build websites or even something like editing a photo. Yeah, gra- just the graphic design between- has become totally commodified where I mean, not totally, but just it's it's before you genuinely needed some salaried person within design to do anything. Now you can go to Fiverr. You can go, you know, that's just the, the, the tools are so much more robust. Absolutely. Before we had Photoshop, you needed to have really high level technical skills to do the things you could do with Photoshop. Then when Photoshop came out, you still needed some high level technical skills, but not as I mean, even, much. Even when I first um, started blogging, I had to learn HTML just to be able to blog, to, to like put a paragraph break in or use italics or bold. There wasn't any blog editors that did that for you. Absolutely. And and so just like how PicMonkey came along as the next thing to make it easier or like all the changes that you've seen with WordPress, I'm I'm with you. When I first started blogging, there were a lot of there were a lot of days. Right. I I wasted like four or five hours teaching myself some new skill. But then I was proud of myself because it's like, yeah, I know how to do this new thing. I'm so much more valuable (laughs) now. And now none of those skills are required at all because it's built into the system. And I, I think in the same way that we have with with the smartphone you you have your 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 basic operating system once that operating system is in place it becomes less about who can build the best operating system and it becomes more about how to exploit this operating system and 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 the focus of creativity shifts to people that are making apps and things like that and the amount of people that are in the game of improving the operating system get smaller. I think in a similar way, you know, ask as more and more people go into coding because there is a strong trend in that direction. As more people learn it, I, I believe that one of the outcomes of this sort of like explosion in, in the popularization of coding will be that we will create ways of doing things that now require coding um, that, that will allow the average person to do them. And, and I think with the example that you gave with blogging, we already see evidence of this particular thing being real. What, what, what does Zach have to say uh, he, about he it? Didn't, he said he didn't have time to get into it, but he said uh, he just said, I think we might disagree slightly on this, so I'd like to hear you guys talk about it. So we'll have to – I'm interviewing him I think in a couple of weeks so we can chat about that. But but one thing I want to say is that I, I would never – so even though I have this, this belief that, you know uh, – like, look, don't worship coding as if it's everyone must learn it. Oh my gosh, I'm in this panic. I'm behind. I don't know how to code. I'm screwed. You know, I got to learn. Everyone's good. It's, it's, it's hugely valuable right now. I don't think it's going to be forever. I think it's going to be replaced by other things. Don't mistake that to, to be like, oh, coding doesn't matter. It's stupid. I mean, one, I don't think it's going to happen overnight. Two, it doesn't, even if it does, like, like today, if you love penmanship and calligraphy and are passionate about it, you can still do it and you can even still make a living doing it if you if that's who you are if you love it so it's i'm not at all saying don't go learn to code oh coding is bad because that'd be that'd be an equal mistake in the opposite direction you know it's just like saying just go learn to code just because coding is valuable don't go learn to code because it's not it's losing its value no figure out what you like to do and if you really love it or you have some reason like you really love creating worlds for example and given the current technology coding skills are the best way to create worlds then master that tool as a means to getting you to that end of creating worlds virtual worlds or whatever it might be and if it becomes outmoded 
if your primary motivation has always been creating worlds anyway, you're going to keep up on the latest ways to do that. I mean, just because I learned how to use, you know, Microsoft Word really in depth once upon a time because I needed it to make newsletters and write things doesn't mean that, oh no, I became a Microsoft Word expert and now Microsoft Word is outmoded and people use, you know, Google Docs or whatever. Um, I'm screwed. No, not at all. I mean, you can keep learning new stuff. You can keep adapting. I mean, people, most of the the coders I know who are successful, they started learning one language that they don't even use anymore. They've moved on to other languages. So I'm not at all saying, you know, don't go code or anything like that. I'm not trying to make some uh, prediction that applies to everyone across the board career wise. But I think it's important to not try again, unless you're doing it consciously opportunistically, like TK said, if you want to follow trends and be like, Hey, I want to spend a year just going wherever it's hot and making as much money as I can. I'm going to go, I'm going to go work on a crab boat in Alaska for three months. Then I'm going to go down to the shale oil fields in Alberta, Canada. And I'm just going to get a job because I can make a ton of money. I'm going to follow the trends. I'm going to code for a year. I'm going to, that if you're doing that consciously, absolutely. But I would say as sort of a life career path formation, don't stress about whatever everyone says. Oh, you got to go into STEM fields. That's where the money is. That's where the jobs are. That's the security. Oh, you've got to go into coding. Everyone, Forget that stuff. Because at the end of the day, all that matters is value creation. And value creation comes from you doing something that you can do better and cheaper than most other people. And that's going to be a lot of things. And I think you want to do something that you actually enjoy. You're more likely to be good at it. And I also think even if you are a coder, if you just learn to code purely and be like, okay, this skill is going to do all the work for me, you're probably going to be less successful and less happy than if you approach it creatively and say, look, I'm not a coder. I'm a creative problem solver. Coding is one of the tools in my toolkit. So is being able to communicate with people and emotional intelligence. So is, you know, an artistic eye. So is, you know, whatever other things you have, it can be one of the tools you use to achieve that, but get to know what that is and something that will never be outmoded is human ingenuity and creative problem solving. That's sort of entrepreneurial thinking. So whether you use tools like coding, whatever else to get a job or to do things, um, don't put all your eggs in that basket and think it's going to do the work for you. But, but I look forward to the world where I can build software without having any coding skills. Oh man, you know, along the lines of what you were saying about, um, doing something that you enjoy. It, it's not because the universe is a magical place and because magical little fairies will come out and assist you in helping you make money if you do something that you enjoy. It's that when you enjoy something, you are far more likely to work hard at it. You are far more likely to put extra hours in, to do the things that are necessary to become great, to make interesting connections, and to you know have ideas that are unconventional. That's, that's really where your advantages are. Another thing you, you raise a very interesting point about learning. A lot of what makes these issues so stressful for people is because we we look at learning as a, as a tool to protect us from the possibility of ever wasting our time. We are deathly afraid of learning something or mastering something if it's remotely possible that that skill might become outdated or less useful. And, and I think it's important to shift our understanding of learning from that school mindset to a more explorative mindset, that learning is about personal development and self-actualization. Learning is about the process of becoming more intelligent and becoming more confident in your creative ability. And you don't get that by doing affirmations, self-esteem exercises, and positive thinking. You gotta know what it's like to get out there and take on challenges, overcome mm -hmm. those challenges, do things that are hard, and figure them out. And when you do that, whether the particular skill is always in date or not, 
you gain something tangible and intangible that is transferable in any field. So I, I think all success, all educational success breeds. Oh man, I would success. say mastering anything, no matter how irrelevant it may seem, will make you a better person than just being average at everything or trying to pick one specialization and only focusing on learning things that directly apply to your immediate job. I, I, I mean, it's kind of like it's like physical exercise. You know, nobody says, oh, but learning to bench press, you know, 200 pounds, 10 times, that's of no practical use because none, there's no job I can get where bench pressing is going to get me paid. Nobody says that because you understand the point is you do these activities, mastering the bench press isn't because the bench press is the thing that's going to make you successful. It's because it makes your body healthier and stronger. And that applies to all the things you do. And it's like that with your mind. I, I was talking to, to Cameron Sorsby, our colleague at Praxis the other day and saying, can you imagine the, the world of podcasting allows us to do something really interesting. It allows us to learn from people under the pretext of interviewing them. I mean, I do this all the time. I bring guests on and say, I want to interview. And they'll say, yeah, I'll come interview. If I just said, hey, give me a call, let's talk, they might not, they probably wouldn't, and it would feel kind of weird, but I can pick all the people that I think are amazing and are highly knowledgeable in certain areas, and I can learn from them by just asking them questions for an hour. And, and Cameron and I were saying, like, what if, what if you just took a year and you said, I am going to do one podcast episode a week, I'm going to do 50 podcasts, and I'm going to pick, you know, 10 topics and do five episodes on each topic, and I'm going to find five experts to interview on each topic you could truly become incredibly highly knowledgeable. I mean, just do, you know, five episodes in a row on uh, quantum mechanics, five episodes on auto mechanics, five episodes on whatever. And, and you do some background research, you bring on experts, you interview them. I guarantee someone who did that and made a real effort at it and made this podcast a, a high quality thing and they went out there and they would come away at the end of that year being more valuable to any job you can imagine. They would be a more valuable version of themselves and they would be able to create more value in just about any way possible. And you know, you, you hear phrases like whatever, the law of attraction or you're, you're vibrating at a frequency that attracts opportunities to you and people don't like that language, it sounds all mystical. But you can strip all the mystical stuff away if you set your mind to something. I mean, I mean it's, like when you, it's like when you discover a new word that you didn't know existed before. Once you've discovered it, you start to hear it everywhere because you're tuned in. So once you decide, I'm interested in, you know, whatever it might be, uh, podcasting, and you tune into that and you get excited about it and you let yourself sort of talk about it, you just, your, your mind is more aware of it, all of a sudden you will start to see opportunities. They're not magically vibrating to you because you decided you liked it, but you are someone who's bleeding with an energy and a passion that comes off. And when people hear you talk about podcasting, they see that and it triggers something in their brain and they say, oh my gosh, I have a friend who podcasts, you guys should talk. And you start getting connections and introductions and you start to have things happen because you're letting that passion come through. And if you only do stuff purely because you think it's going to earn you money and you hate it, that passion's not going to come through and people aren't going to have those synapses firing in their brain that make them realize, I need to connect you to this other person. You're not going to have those things happen. So the more you focus on things that you love, the more it will emanate from you and it will result in opportunities. They don't magically appear. They appear for very logical reasons. It's, it's, it's a natural uh, process of people making connections for you. Well, you know, one of the greatest challenges facing young people today is the challenge of distinguishing themselves in a world where most of their peers are really, really good at following instructions and doing all of the things that really smart adults tell them to do. And, and, and that's a unique sort of challenge because 
it, 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 it points us to this lost art of just becoming an interesting person. Everyone is now saying the same things when they go to job interviews. Everyone is now taking the same courses and doing all the same stuff. Everyone's reading all of the same articles and all the same blogs and listening to all the same podcasts. So how do you set yourself apart in this world? Well, part of it comes from just being interesting. Most of the job interviews I've gone to in my life and most of the job interviews I've conducted and observed have involved that interviewer seeking some information from that person that just indicates a level of interestingness, having something that you've done before that indicates that you have personality. I mean, no one likes someone that is just a total do-gooder, a total cookie-cutter personality whose only basis for for decision-making was, this won't get me into trouble, this has minimal amount of risk, this seems to have the most predictable and safe outcomes, this will make the people in my life happy. This will prevent people from, from uh, disliking me or what have you. It's fine for you to have some choices that fall into that category, but it's extremely difficult to distinguish yourself if the overwhelming majority of what you do comes from that basis. So be interesting. I love it when I interview someone and, and they're interviewing for something that is technical or let, let's say non-artistic, so to speak, and they say to me, yeah, I can play the trumpet. And I go, really? Uh, tell me about that a little bit. And they say, oh, well, just a couple of years ago, I decided that I was interested in learning an instrument and I wanted to take on the challenge. And, and I just did it. I've been practicing an hour every day for the past two years and I can do this and I can do that. And I even did this sort of cheap little album that no one's going to buy, but it's just something that I wanted to do. I'm impressed by that person because not only are they interesting, not only do I want to know more about them and be around them more, but I'm convinced now that this is the kind of person who knows how to hustle. They know how to work hard. They know how to be put in an unfamiliar situation and thrive. Those are all things that are far more impressive than just, hey, um, I got straight A's. Um, I did everything that people told me to do, which means I'm really good at doing stuff. If you tell me <laughs> what to do and if it's already proven to be successful, I mean, that's just not going to cut it. Be hey, let's uh... – Let's leave everybody with uh, one piece of content. Uh, I'll go first. This one's really easy. It's really short. It's an article on FEE.org and it's title. It's by BK Marcus. And the title is something about uh, web browser, why web browsers are more useful than GPAs. And the basic uh, finding, it's really interesting, is that companies looking at potential employees have found that there's really no correlation in their GPA and their success. In fact, occasionally there's an inverse correlation. The, the better your your grades, uh, the less likely you are to succeed in many roles, even roles that involve following scripts and following rules. And what they found to be a better correlation, a pretty strong correlation, is whether you use the default web browser that came on your computer or whether you download a different one like Firefox or Chrome. Not because those are superior browsers, but because the type of person who doesn't just accept the default, but who's looking to optimize, who's experimenting with other stuff, who's saying, oh, I've heard that this one's better, let me try it out. Who's trying different tools and, and looking for out-of-the-box solutions, that is a better indicator of potential for success than someone who uh, does better than average at following rules in terms of getting grades. And I thought that was a really profound article, uh, some great stuff in there, go check it out. TK, what do you got? I love it. I'll recommend The Rich Employee, by James Altucher. And the basic premise of the book is that most of us are never going to become entrepreneurs in the conventional sense of founding a startup or opening up a business. However, most of us will have to go to work. And going to work can no longer be about just showing up 
and trying to get a paycheck for doing all the right stuff. There is a certain kind of mentality that's necessary to create opportunities at work and to advance in work. So you no longer have the luxury of saying, I'm not going to be an entrepreneur. I don't want to start a business. So I don't have to worry about being immensely creative, immensely artistic and immensely entrepreneurial in my approach to job seeking and in my approach to creating value at the job. This book goes beyond just the philosophy of why you need to think this way, but it also gives you a lot of practical tips at how to be an employee that really creates value and goes beyond the status quo. A rich employee. All right. Good stuff. Oh, and, uh, I, I I forget to mention this sometimes. You know, I feel like I need to change it up. I need to do this in like my old timey radio voice, like 1930s guy. You know, <laughs> I, I always thought that was weird how accents don't just differ from region, but they actually differ through time. Like people talked differently back then. Uh, so weird. So we'll we'll switch it up. I'm just gonna mention a few things in my and but I've got to go old timey voice here. Let's see if I can do it. <clears throat> um, don't forget to check out the podcast on iTunes. Give us a review. Give us a rating. Tell us if you like it. Uh, mm. I, I don't know how. Let me see here. I gotta get. <laughs> I'm trying to get it. Sometimes I get into this at my home and all my kids get really mad. I say, you know, operator, what's the 429? You know, whatever. Like, you know how guys used to talk so fast and weird? Back in the movies? <laughs> I'm here with TK Coleman. He's a man. He's a mensch. TK, what do you have to say? <laughs> so check out it, the man. podcast. Give us it. a review on iTunes. Um, go to IsaacMorehouse.com. You can leave a Ask Isaac question. You can email me anytime, Isaac at Discover Praxis, TK at Discover Praxis. This has been a blast. TK Coleman, I had a fun time on Friday. We'll bring you back next week. What do you say? <laughs> Looking forward to it, man. Peace out.